because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Let's pray. Father God, here we stand before your precious word. We're before your word. We're before the heavenly hosts, the choirs of angels, the throne room of the Son of God, taken through the power of the Spirit in our worship before your face. And so we pray that you bless this word today. Bless it to those present and gathered, but also, more importantly, use it Use it with those tuning in through the internet. Let your word go forth and accomplish its intended purposes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you want in life? We often get so caught up in our daily routines and patterns, we forget to to ask ourselves that simple question, what do you want in life? Do we want financial or work-related security today? Do we want health today? Do we want someone to plow our driveway today? I think Terry Smith was telling me about that. Do we want more meaningful friendships? Do we want someone to share our life with? Or do we want the person we do share our life with to um, be more connected to us? Do we want to be comfortable? Do we not want to never be challenged? Do we want to be embraced? What do you want in life? It's a very personal kind of question, and yet it's a good one to begin with because as we look a little more into this prayer by Paul, which is from verse 15 to 23 this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to want to specifically pray for certain things in the life of the faithful Christian that if we're willing to be honest, might not match the kinds of things we tend to prioritize in life. Or even if we want the same things Paul will want for us, we don't really pursue those things with the kind of passion that they should be pursued. So, what do you want in life? Now, to truly want something in life is to have ambition for it. What are your ambitions in this moment? Do you have competing ambitions in your life at this moment. And what do I mean by, say, competing ambitions? I mean, if you have two things that you want, but you can't have both. So, for instance, I want to have access to the best Mexican food in the world, which means I want San Diego Mexican food. But, however, I also never really want to live in California again because, and I'm allowed to say this, you can't say this because you're not Californians. Uh, that would be unchristian of you, but I'm an insider uh, because it's California. I, I, mean, I don't want to go back to that place. So I have competing ambitions. I want great Mexican food that only really comes from San Diego, but I don't 
want to live in California. I can't have both. That's a competing ambition. Now, when we're talking about competing ambitions in our faith life, those competing ambitions really are never from God. God's not a God of the spirit of, uh, to give us competing ambitions that are both from him. They really actually are, when we experience them in this life, us fighting against the things that God wants for us in our lives. In high school, I, I really wasn't a very ambitious person, but um, my, my, in my high school, I really was surrounded by an, an acquaintance or friends with people that uh, were incredibly ambitious. I had high school friends that made it to the NBA. I had high school friends that made it to the NFL. I had high school friends that made it to Major League Baseball. And actually, one of my closest, uh, one of the people I knew best was uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Pryor. Uh, he's, he was a personal friend, but also a family friend. He still is a family friend. And Mark Pryor, on his senior year, he decided to quit the basketball team. And I gave him a lot of grief for that, made a lot of fun of him about doing that, because the year he quit was the year that we won the state championship. You know, we won that state championship in California, you know, that state I don't want to return to. And... And so I gave him a lot of grief, but why he quit was he had an ambition to be a Major League Baseball player, and he wanted to dedicate himself to to cut out other things in his life so that he could be so dedicated to reaching that goal. And in 2001, Mark Pryor ended up being the first pick in the MLB draft. And even though uh, his career was cut short by injuries, he ended up having a fairly notable baseball career. And uh, still, to this day, he's in baseball. He, he works for this little team that you might have heard of. They're the current World Series champions called the Dodgers. He's a coach with that team. And so his ambition and his pursuit of a life in baseball that really began with that decision his senior year in high school, he, he's really accomplished some amazing things in his life through doing that. And if... Mark Pryor can be so ambitious about baseball and pursuing that with such a reckless abandon. How much more reason do we as Christians have to pursue the kind of God that the Word of God testifies of? God who loves us like this. And yet we Christians struggle to be so singularly focused even though we have more reason to be dedicated to God than my family friend uh, Mark Pryor ever had to be dedicated to baseball. Now in verses 15 and 16, as covered last week, we learn how Paul wanted us to move from this impressive list of things we know about God in order to have an active faith and love in our communities with one another. Yet the question we're going to look at today is how do we make that leap? How do we go from that head knowledge of Jesus into a living faith and an active love in our communities? Well, it begins, as Paul will tell us in verse 17, with wisdom. And it's not just any kind of wisdom. We know in Scripture, for instance, in Isaiah 47, verse 10, that there are kinds of wisdom that can lead people astray. Worldly wisdom. What people believe they confidently understand and know about God leads many astray. During early COVID, 
I had this biblical skeptic that I have some degree of connection to who for about a month must have discovered Google because he kept trying to poke holes in, in the arguments of a biblical worldview, of a, of a faith based in Jesus, of the kinds of things I teach here at the pulpit. Mainly, he wanted to convince me that the Bible is not trustworthy and true, and the God it testifies of is not trustworthy and true. And none of his arguments were earth-shattering, none were very profound, and I think, in part, what magnified his frustration as he talked to me was how quickly I could dismiss and bat down the silliness of the arguments he was making about God. Because he believed himself to be wise each and every time he came to me. So that kind of wisdom, the wisdom that thinks itself as smarter than God, is a bad kind of wisdom. That's the kind of wisdom I pray for my children to stay away from. My, my, you know, the faith community here at Old Goshenhop and family and friends and alike stay away from that kind of wisdom. However, Scripture also makes clear the world, even the pagan, the unbeliever, offers wisdom to us at times. There's some degree of good wisdom. Wisdom isn't just something that's contained within the church. This is why, for instance, the first martyr of the church in the book of Acts, before he's put to death, can talk about how Moses was raised in the good wisdom of the Egyptians. Some certain things that the Egyptians knew and understood blessed Moses and blessed his ministry. So wisdom isn't always good because there is bad wisdom that can lead some astray. But also, wisdom isn't just found in the Christian community and always bad outside the church. However, then what kind of wisdom does Paul have in mind here? And the answer is neither. The clue for the kind of wisdom Paul is asking for is found in what the Apostle Paul says. He basically says, you want to know how you'll go from faith and love and head knowledge to just being some concept and to being an active part of your life, it begins with a spirit of wisdom. And notice the word spirit in verse 17 is capitalized in the ESV. And if it's capitalized in the English, it's done so for a reason. And so for what, or better said, who is Paul referring to? Who is Paul referring to? The Holy Spirit, yes. The whisper, the Holy Spirit. Maybe a whisper, because we don't have too many people, and it's like it's scary to call on people. Um, yes. So real wisdom, the kind that can empower great faith and love, is found in God, in the Spirit of God. And it's at this moment, while likely a great many of us have not yet noticed, that Paul has given us a head scratcher of a statement. When we think of a God, God who is a Holy Spirit as Protestants coming upon us to bless us with wisdom, we tend to think as Protestants, oh, that's easy enough. That's that date I wrote in the Bible. That's when the Lord led me to see that He is my Lord and Savior. And so some of us might first assume that Paul is talking about going from being an unbeliever to a believer. Maybe that's the spirit of wisdom Paul is praying that this church receives. But actually, that can't be what Paul is talking about in verse 17. And if you want to know why that can't be, all you have to do is go back to look at the first verse of the book. Ephesians, if you remember, is an insider book, not an outsider book. What do I mean by that? 
While the unbeliever, of course, can benefit from Ephesians, unbelievers have been brought to Christ through the book of Ephesians. When Paul originally wrote this book, he made clear, starting in verse 1, he was writing specifically, not to a mixed audience, a believer and unbeliever, but he specifically addresses the faithful, those who are already born from above, those who have already been saved and are within the faith. He doesn't have in mind a mixed body of people. He's even told these same individuals in verses 13 and 14 earlier that they have already been sealed by the Holy Spirit and by that sealing they are guaranteed a heavenly inheritance to come. Guaranteed a salvation. Guaranteed a redemption. Paul's already promised that the faithful who read this letter already have salvation and it's impossible for them to lose it. So why then if these people, if he's addressing those who are saved... Is the Apostle Paul troubling with himself in verse 17 with praying for a God-given, spirit-centered wisdom? And you want to know why? The reason why is we as Christians far too often settle for a lukewarm salvation. I'm going to be candid for a moment on the state of American Christianity. I think Christianity has largely been lost by our society more because of the kinds of things we failed to do than what others who hate Christianity have accomplished. As the quote from the Pogo comic strip used to say, we have met the enemy and he is us. While the typical faithful American Christian is a person who understands they are saved by God through faith and sealed to God through that salvation, we as a broader community have cared little about God who is a guiding spirit of wisdom. We don't really want him to actually guide us and illuminate us in our day-to-day life. I think in general, American Christianity's ambition has been to be a people who idealize building a middle-class lifestyle and faith with a few good friends along the way, children who know enough about God but not too much, and hopefully our children can have a better financial future than we had And with that better financial future, continue giving some money to that church down the street. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Lukewarm from generation to generation to generation. American Christianity has largely been the kind of porridge that Goldilocks likes. Neither too hot nor too cold. A middle-tier faith and a middle-tier home. With middle-tier passions for God. With a middle-tier commitment to Him. And yet the irony is that Paul's prayer, which I remind you, is coming from prison. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. Is that the Apostle Paul is not praying for that kind of middling Christian existence. Paul's vision is not some bland faith. Paul doesn't want his faithful audience to be content with Christian mediocrity. But the kind of faith the Apostle Paul prays for is the one with active conviction, understanding, an understanding that is revelatory in how they live. The kind of faith that's willing to be made poor so that the riches of Christ might be more fully displayed. Notice that connected to this wisdom, Paul prays that the spirit of wisdom also gives revelation. Now there's irony in Paul's word because if American Christians love one thing, they love their eschatology. They love their charts and their speculations on the end times, the second coming of Christ. But that's not the kind of revelation Paul has in mind here, even though it's the same Greek word that we get the word apocalypse from. 
No, the kind of revelation Paul has in mind is not some epic end-time battle between Christ and Satan, but it's far more simple than that. Paul says you want to have revelation? You want to have an apocalypse? You want to know God in such a way? Then you need to know God well enough that He continues, continuously reveals more about Himself to you and the way you should go. Because a simple, steady, abiding faith, one where being close to God is the most important thing in your life, is a radical thing in this world. Such a faith is going to have insight that others can never understand. Because your faith comes from a deep and true relationship with an intimately personal God. But then so many of us, we don't really have the courage to follow God that closely. We worry about the things that will force us to miss out on or leave behind. I love the honesty of Augustine. He used to pray, God, make me chase, but don't do it so quickly. Don't, don't answer that yet. He, he was really praying to, for God to keep him in a lukewarm faith, to not get him to something that was deeper and more mature, that he could still keep God and his favorite pet sins on how we do the same thing, how we're all like the stubborn toddler at the end of the pool, shaking our head, refusing a richer dive into experiencing God's wisdom and revelation in our life. We won't listen to the one calling out to us from within, jump in, jump in more deeply. And let us think about that toddler at the edge of the pool for a moment, being called in by someone who loves them. At first we think the toddler's issue is fear. The toddler won't jump in the pool because they're scared and afraid of the pool. But the deeper issue in that moment is actually trust. The toddler is failing to trust the one that's calling out to them. Christian, have you jumped into the pool with God? Or are you still one of the faithful Paul is praying for today where you're in the facility, but you really refuse to commit yourself to the deeper waters? Even though he calls on us to jump into greater union with him. What are the patterns in our lives right now? Or even what are the problems that are problems? Not because God hasn't given us a direction on where we should go. But rather we just refuse to jump in and let him lead us in his spirit of wisdom. We all have them. If you don't think you have places in your life where you stubbornly refuse to place greater trust in the wisdom of God, you're not looking hard enough or being honest with yourself. And Paul this morning says to us in those moments, you need more of God's revelation in your life. You need more knowledge and understanding of Him in those critical moments where you're content to settle with far less. In one sense, what Paul is praying for is the idea that we need to be a more richly faithful Christian. We need to be greedy, and so greedy that we just want God more than anything else. What's the problem with opening up a bag of your favorite snack food? The problem is, if it's truly your favorite snack food, it's hard to stop. You keep wanting more of it, more of it, more of it, until we finally get up from, let's say, the couch and store it away. Well, the problem with the Christian is actually the reverse when it comes to God. We treat God like the average young child treats vegetables on a plate. While we should always want more of Him, we settle and make far too little room for Him in our life. 
And so we end up having that meddling middle existence, that middle-class lifestyle kind of Christian life, instead of a far more wealthy experience with God. I love the imagery that Paul uses next, that as we find ourselves with a more robust faith, we'll begin to have the eyes of our hearts in light. And it's just one of those images and metaphors that's kind of helpful to think of literally, like eyeballs on a heart. We're, we're about to, next Sunday is going to be Valentine's Day, and, and that means a lot of people are going to be handing out cards with hearts on them, or candy lollipops with hearts on them, because there's almost this universal desire for us to live by our heart, to love by our heart, and to look out into this world with eyes that come from our heart. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want that for you too, and I pray for that for you. And you'll only find it not in some pithy card you buy from CVS, but you actually will only find it in moving from a lukewarm faith to a richly abiding relationship with Jesus. So this movement from the end of verse 17 to the beginning of verse 18 is declaring to us, if you're stuck in a rut, faithful Christian, if you're in a cycle or a pattern where you do not currently enjoy peace, then the answer is to draw closer to the Lord so that you might have new eyes to embrace His revelatory leading in your life. You know, I could go out for a hike to some place I've never been before or an environment I'm entirely unfamiliar with. But if I have someone with me who knows the direction in which I should go on that hike, so long as I keep that person beside me, I will never be lost. And that's a little bit what, like what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If you're feeling lost, then stick more closely to God. Stop settling for too little of Him. Really what Paul is touching on here is in one sense the key to all life. We are often tempted to think moments in our life lack meaning, lack purpose, lack value. And yet really when we're experiencing such an emptiness, the real problem is, according to the Apostle Paul, is being satisfied with staying at an arm's length from, from God so that his intimate love doesn't really profoundly guide us, change us, and move us. God has given you life. God has put you in this moment in history, not so that you might settle for a mild and lukewarm Christian life and faith, but rather he has given you life so that you might have an intimate life in him, by him, and through him. You know, this is the irony of having a casual kind of relationship and faith life with God. Such individuals live life mildly embracing a God who is so easily understandable, so predictable, relatively aloof, and frankly, to be even more candid, a God who is boring. And that kind of God isn't really worth worshiping in the first place. Some of you at home, maybe some of you here, are so bored with Christianity, and, and the fact of the matter is, you should be. Because the God you've created in your mind is a boring kind of God. You should draw closer to Him and come to know the God that the Apostle Paul intimately knew. Stop being afraid at the edge of the pool. Dive in. A lot of Christians settle on believing in a God where really He's not worth your time and effort. He's, he's just this demanding dullard. Yet Paul knows nothing of that kind of tame experience with God, even though 
he's in prison, he, he is captivated by this God. If you think worship is boring, if you think learning about God is boring, if you'd rather hear less about the God of Scripture in any given week, you probably should ask yourself, do you really know the God the Apostle Paul knows here in the way that the Apostle Paul knows Him? Paul worships a God who can radically change lives. Paul's life being a primary example of this. And Paul's already told us and continues to make clear that this God never abandons His children. So if we sometimes feel as if God's dropped us into a situation in life without direction, without purpose, without His leading, it's not because God has actually abandoned us in those situations. Rather, it's that we have just lost our sense of direction and the direction to head. And that direction is to rest more firmly, to dive in more deeply into our Lord. This God whom the Apostle knows intimately is immeasurably great. And powerful towards all of us who believe. You know, the church of my youth largely taught me that the best I could ever get in this life was the sacrament of communion when it comes to knowing God. That the deep thoughts about God, the deep intimacy about God, those were for special individuals, the clergy and the apparatus of the clergy. And they would pass down a few crumbs, but the kind of intimacy that Paul talks about the first chapter, this first chapter of Ephesians, and he prays about, and he prays for us to have, is a far more dynamic idea. And honestly, he never brings up the sacraments. Because the fullness of, an, of intimacy with God is found in a multifaceted, active, and abiding relationship. You can never have marriage with only one, a good marriage with only one kind of intimacy. But a good marriage actually requires several branches of intimacy, different kinds of intimacy. Such is also true with God. When it comes to a deep knowledge of God, we need more. How intimate are you in your marriage to God? That sounds a little awkward at first, but that's what this prayer we've looked at today is really focusing on. Paul really wants us to ask ourselves that kind of question. How intimate are you? in your marriage to God? Or to go back to the question I asked at the very beginning, what do you want most in this life? What do you want most in this life? Or maybe, through the power of the Spirit, who do you want most in this life? Is it greater and deeper intimacy with Him? There's an unfortunate reality of knowing Christian history. Right now, a lot of American Christians are worried that persecution might soon come in new and unique ways. And yet, the reality is, such countries that are already persecuting significant numbers of Christians, countries such as China, Pakistan, and India, where being arrested or killed as a Christian in certain regions is fairly common, places like that are actually growing in their hunger for Jesus while middle-class American Christianity is quickly dying out and continues to find itself unprepared to meet the moment that we find ourselves in. We've wanted a lukewarm faith far too often. We've lived our lives as Augustine once did. God, make me chaste. God, make me grow in holiness. God, make me more faithful, but not yet, Lord. I don't want you to answer that prayer yet. Maybe, maybe ten seconds before I die. We've wanted in our communities far too long a lukewarm walk with God 
where we're only minimally intimate with him so that we can continue enjoying our middle-class life. Oh, the poverty, the poverty we've embraced because we haven't been prayerfully seeking, seeking after our Lord more richly that he might reveal a greater way forward. May the apostles' prayer for us and our lives be answered. May we have courage to jump in headfirst and to begin to know our God more intimately than we ever have before. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, oh how we struggle. Oh how we often will leave your places of worship We'll leave our prayer, prayers behind and quickly forget about you. Help us to dive in more deeply. Help us to swim in the waters of this life boldly with Christ. Help us to truly not settle for a lukewarm faith, but to have a rich faith brought about by the spirit of wisdom. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.